If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you, if you would, take them out, turn them on, and join me in John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 15. It'll be out of John 15 this morning that we spend some time focusing on the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and preparing our hearts for the time that we will have in just a few moments to partake of the Lord's Supper together as we remember what Christ has done. Guys, I don't know about you, maybe you share my guilt in this, but if you'll remember back, um, husbands, the time when you were pursuing your wife, how much time and energy and effort that you put into your creativity in gaining her attention and her affection. I know my wife has told me she misses those days. When I put much effort and energy into communicating to her by my actions and by my affections, the ways that I showed that I was thinking of her, that my heart was directed towards her, and proving my love for her. Unfortunately, as time goes on, I have fallen into the pattern and the routine that I believe many of us do, where I just allow the relationship to kind of sort of run on autopilot. Unfortunately, relationships can't run on autopilot. A relationship that is running on autopilot is a relationship that is in a one-way direction and a crash course for the ground. Relationships require work. And it's not only on me for a relationship to work with my wife. We have been, God, by God's blessing and grace, married for 13 years. And we're on lucky number 13 this year, um, moving towards. But it requires work from both sides. If our relationship is going to have another 13, 15, 30 years together, it's going to require work from her, work from me, investments together. But unfortunately, in our relationships, we have a tendency to fall into this individualistic approach to our lives. And that is not just true, I think, in our human relationships. That's true in our lives all around. It isn't very difficult to, to look at our world around us and to realize when we examine the world that we live in a very individualistic society. There's a lot of people who will gather together, be drawn towards one another, and share potentially a common cause, if you will. But very, it is very rare to find a group outside of maybe a family unit of interdependent, vulnerable people. Instead, what we find is much like what we see and experience in the college football stadiums or any other sporting event or concerts. You have a whole bunch of people who are together but alone. They're experiencing it alongside of one another, but they're not necessarily living life with each other. But when we interact with the gospel and are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we find in Christ is that he assumes that by the power of the gospel, the work of Christ in our lives is to create a community that results in very deep, intentional, personal, sacrificial relationships. 
not just a group of people who are merely together at specific times and in specific locations who then go and live their own lives, but instead a group of people that we find in Acts chapter 2 who are devoted to one another. Look with me, if you will, in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. Jesus assumes our relationship with one another, and he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I know the weakness of my own heart is to focus on myself, to live self-centeredly, to live for my own wants and desires, to protect myself, to refuse to be vulnerable, but instead, Heavenly Father, to just go through the motions to live as an example, but not necessarily live connected with those that are around me. But Lord Jesus, your very command that we love one another assumes that we are with one another, that we are for one another, and that we are drawn into something bigger than what our very individualistic tendencies and individualistic society wants to build. Lord God, I pray that this morning you would reveal to us the ways that we have maybe united our hearts to an institution and not necessarily bound ourselves to a people. And I pray that this morning, by the power and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you would remind us that we are bound to a person who exemplified love and who calls us equips us, empowers us to love as we have been loved by your grace and your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Though we are prone to these individualistic lifestyles throughout the New Testament and by the call of the gospel, Jesus calls us to die to ourselves. And what we find is throughout Scripture is that dying to myself actually draws me into a deeper fellowship with the people that are around me. When I die to my individualistic tendencies and my self-centeredness and my selfishness, what I find is that I am drawn then into a deep fellowship and relationship with other people. In these verses that we read, verse 12 and verse 17, we find the same command echoed at the beginning of the verses and the end of the verses, like a great big parentheses around what's in the heart of this passage, or if you will, like two arms that come around in a great big hug that bind this passage together. The command is this, love one another. This is all part of a broader section that begins all the way back in chapter 14 when Jesus says that he is giving a new command, and that command is that we love one another. 
This love for one another is to be the characteristic that defines the community that Jesus Christ is building. It is what defines the community that Jesus Christ builds when you get to Acts chapter 2 and you find out that they weren't merely devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the preaching of Scripture. They weren't merely devoted to the prayers. They weren't merely devoted to the Lord's Supper. They were devoted to one another. It was essential to their identity. Not just the preaching of Scripture, not just the coming together, not just the prayers, not just the activity of being the church. They were devoted to each other. And that is rooted in this command that Jesus Christ gave to every single one of His disciples, love one another as I have loved you. Drawing near to Jesus draws us near to one another. These disciples are there not merely simply because they're drawn to each other, but ultimately because they are drawn to Jesus. I told you the commands are like two big arms that hold the passage together, and in the heart of the passage is Jesus' declaration, I have called you my friends. He has drawn them into a deep fellowship with himself, and in being in fellowship with him, they are then drawn into a fellowship with one another, and that fellowship with one another is meant to be active. They are to love one another as Christ has loved them. We teach our children at a very young age the song that declares to them the truth of Scripture, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves you. Jesus has loved you. And Christ's love looks like something. And the way in which we have been loved by Christ is how we are expected then to love one another. The question becomes, how is it that Christ has loved us? Verse 13, Jesus says, Greater love is no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus has loved us sacrificially. We oftentimes quote this passage of Scripture on days like last Sunday when we recognize Veterans Day. That no greater love is this than someone would lay down his life for his friends, this ultimate sacrifice. When Jesus makes this statement, though, and as Jesus is speaking this to his disciples, this is at a time after he has initiated the Lord's Supper, while he is either walking towards or, go, or already in the Garden of Gethsemane, merely hours before the Sanhedrin's soldiers are going to show up and arrest him. Less than 24 hours before he is going to be hanging on a cross and enduring God's wrath for your sin, for mine, and for theirs. Jesus is preparing them so that they might understand what it is that is about to happen. That Jesus is going to die, as we have seen before, as Paul says, for their sins. He is going to take upon himself as the ultimate act of love what they deserve and he does not. He is not merely going to die physically. He is going to endure everlasting, eternal damnation that they might be rescued of it. That's how Christ loved his disciples. That's how Jesus loves you and me. And Jesus calls us to love as he has loved us, which means we must be those who are willing to love sacrificially ourselves. 
And when we fall into the trap of our own sinful tendency and the patterns of the world to live for myself instead of for one another, we find the church is ripped apart by conflict from the inside out. When I show up to church on Sunday morning looking to get something, I am not loving sacrificially. When I show up to church on Sunday morning with the expectation that I am here to be served, I am here to be loved, we're not loving sacrificially. We are not loving in the way that Christ has loved us. And the truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, this gathering is by its very nature general. There's what, 75, 80 people in this room right now? Every word that comes out of my mouth isn't going to specifically hit every single one of you right where you need to be hit today. And if you show up expecting to have that sweet spot hit for you today and it doesn't and you leave, guess what? You leave feeling like it was a failure and a waste of your time. When you show up this morning and you don't get the song or the music that you prefer in this space and in this place, then you walk away feeling unfed and unfulfilled. But when you come into this place with a mindset of sacrifice, a mindset of service, to love in the same way that you have been loved, such that you begin to notice the people around you, such that you realize that may not have touched my heart and my life, but I trust the Holy Spirit enough to know that there was someone in that room this morning who needed that word, and praise God, they got it. And I might not necessarily be all up involved in this particular song right now, but if I look around and I realize that person is praising God, hands lifted and dancing, praise God, I might not be necessarily enraptured in this particular style of music or song that it might be, and I might not understand it, but praise God, they get to enter into the throne of heaven right now. And then when the roles are reversed then I get to enter into that throne and they may not necessarily be in the same space. And we get to, in that moment, love one another sacrificially. Mike and I used to, Brother Mike, when he was here, we used to say all the time, Mike's responsibility is to teach the younger generation that God didn't start inspiring. I'm not using that in Scripture-inspired language, but God didn't start motivating and inspiring Christian worship songs and hymns with Chris Tomlin and Hillsong. There is something about standing in a 2,000-year tradition singing truths that Christians for generations past have declared as they have sung to the Lord that our young generation needs to be anchored in. But at the same time, these guys' responsibility is to teach the older generation that God didn't stop inspiring worship music with Bill and Gloria Gaither. And we are to come and we get the privilege and the opportunity to sacrificially love one another. Because that's the way that Christ has loved us. But Christ hasn't only loved us sacrificially, he's loved us intimately. Listen to what he says in 14 and 15 again. You are my friends. You're not, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends. And what is it that defines their friendship with Jesus? It's that what I have heard from the Father, I've made known to you. Christ draws these disciples into a deep 
fellowship with himself. In the sense that he makes known to them truths about himself, about his mission, about his person that they wouldn't otherwise know. Jesus brought these, who is the, Jesus, who is the creator of the universe, right? Who in his ultimate position as the second person of the Trinity, as the Son, holds every atom of the universe together. Saw fit to take 12 men and then the disciples that were around them and bring them into such close fellowship with himself that he was willing to reveal secrets to them. He was willing to be close enough to them that when they all ran for the hills, his heart broke. And when we merely gather in this place beside one another, but not in fellowship with one another, we don't love like Christ loves us. This entire book from page one to page thousand and whatever your copy may have, is one grand display of the creator of the universe's desire that you know him. Do you realize that? Our God, the God that we worship, isn't merely giving us a book of rules to follow so that we live right lives. He is revealing himself to us and displaying his heart. And what scripture tells us is that the most important way that he has done that is that the God of the universe clothed himself in flesh and walked among us. Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God who was vulnerable enough to die. Vulnerable enough to be touched. Vulnerable enough to weep in front of his friends. Vulnerable enough to be picked up after his death, carried and buried and cared for in a tomb. And when we come here with an I'm fine attitude, we defame the name of Jesus. We must love one another intimately. That requires a certain vulnerability that allows us to be hurt when people fall and fail and let us down. And it's so easy for all of those times that the broken people around us fail to love us in the way that we need to be loved, that calluses will form on our souls. And we harden ourselves and entrench ourselves in this, I'm okay, I'm fine. A bunch of fine people are a people that are not loving as they have been loved in Christ.
we must be a people that do far more than show up and serve for the sake of proclaiming the name of Christ, as important as that is. We are first and foremost to be the kind of people that serve in this space. Community service organizations get together so that they can meet needs out there. The body of Christ is to be a place where people are so intimately connected that when one person hurts, when one marriage falls apart, when one home is damaged, everybody feels it. In the same way that if a pinky toe gets lopped off, the body feels it. We are to be the type of people that rejoice with those who rejoice, that weep with those who weep. Intimately connected, but that starts within myself, being willing to be seen and being known, to be friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, to be family. But Christ has loved us sacrificially. He's loved us intimately, but then he has also loved us intentionally. You can almost feel the ego of the disciples swelling as Jesus says, you are my friends, not simply my servants and my disciples who are just supposed to be taught by me and to know all of these things. I want you to know me intimately. I want you to know me well. I want you to know my plans. You can feel the ego of these guys filling up inside of them that says, that's right. We're the inner circle. We're the right ones. And then Jesus just destroys that in verse 16 when he says, you did not choose choose me, but I chose you. What a humbling statement. Now we understand, and we don't have time to explain everything else, we understand that the truth of the matter is these disciples did respond to Christ. There were ones Andrew chose to follow Christ long before he was called. There were others that were called. But what Jesus is explaining here is that Jesus is the one who has taken it upon himself to determine who his friends are. Regardless of everything else, and yes, we are called to be intimate with one another, nevertheless, that intimacy is built as trust is earned over time. There are people in my life that I trust with the deepest, darkest corner of my life. And just because you've walked in here this Sunday and you are a brother or sister in Christ doesn't mean that I'm going to entrust you with that just because of who you are. Jesus says here, I have determined to welcome you this close. I have chosen who my friends are. And you are my friends. And that is humbling. And the truth of the matter is that extends to you and to me. That Jesus takes this onus upon himself, but it is also simultaneously humbling and it is empowering and encouraging that Jesus says that he has chosen them. His choice means that he is taking some, actually the ultimate level of responsibility for the relationship. Do you see that? If the choice is completely theirs, then whether or not they stick around is completely up to them. And if life gets too hard and his teachings get too wrong, they can just choose to up and leave whenever they want. And they can hit the road, and you see that. Go back and look at John chapter 6, when you see that he is completely abandoned by the crowds, and he asks the, t the disciples, are you going to leave now too? And they say, where are we going to go? You are the one with the words of life. But because Jesus has chosen these, he is taking upon himself a responsibility for that relationship.
The fact of the matter is, Sarah chose to respond to my expressions of love and pursuit of her. But I chose to pursue her. I chose to invest in her. I must continue to do the same. And now that we are in a relationship, it takes both. And unfortunately, I think that we, what we often have a tendency to do when we think about Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ is we turn it into the series of one-sided relationships. And we live in this mental box of ourselves that says, Jesus did everything that was necessary to start the relationship. He died for me. He was raised to new life. He loves me and he calls me into a relationship with him. I respond, Jesus saved me, and now it's my responsibility to stay saved. He did everything to start it, and now it's up to me to, do, to remain his friend by doing what he has commanded. Verse 14. And we approach our relationship with Jesus Christ as though it is completely up to me to maintain my friendship and my relationship with Jesus. And I do that by bearing the fruit of loving other people. And so we live our lives constantly trying to keep God happy. Constantly trying to stir up within us a love for those that are around us. Because we've, li- we've embraced this dissected view of Christ's love. That it's his love that starts, it's my love that finishes. But nowhere in Scripture do we see that. When Jesus says, I chose you, Jesus is taking responsibility, the primary responsibility for our friendship, for our relationship. And he is active in that. See, the truth of the matter is, and the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus never expects from us what he won't first give to us and enable through us. Never. He will never command you to do something that he will not equip you to do. He will never tell you to do something and not go with you and make it possible for you to do by his presence. Every bit of what we find here as Jesus commands us to love is we are to love as we've been loved. Christ has already loved us sacrificially. Christ has already loved us intimately. Christ has already loved us intentionally and purposefully. And it is his intentional and purposeful love that appoints us to bear the fruit of love in our lives. Not because we stir up within ourselves the ability to do this, but because he graciously gives us the ability to do everything that he's commanded us to do. Because he will never abandon us, he will never leave us, he will never forsake us, but he is with us. We are to love as we've been loved. We are to bear fruit by, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 15, by abiding in the vine. In Christ. He calls us, commands us. If you go back and you read the first half of 15, he says, abide in me. I am the vine. You are commanded to bear the fruit of love in your life. Where does that fruit come from? It comes from the life source, which is the vine. The only way that you are going to be able to bear fruit is if you are intimately connected with Christ and intentionally connected with Christ. 
who is the source of all life. And he says in verse 3, or verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Everything that we need for life and godliness doesn't come as some secondary download to our relationship with Jesus. It's all one package. I hate when I get those updates to my apps on my phone or, or, or my computer that inevitably when they, when they download it, they haven't thought everything through. It's like we're all one big rat experiment at any given time, right? And they're just trying to figure it out. There's an app that I use every single week to pull the audio off of our YouTube channel so that we can download the audio, clean it up, and put it out as a podcast so that you can listen to these sermons again and again. And it was a couple of months ago that it downloaded an automatic update and when it downloaded that update, that computer program, every time that I tried to paste a link from our YouTube channel in that thing, in that program, it would crash. And I got an email the next day that said, hey, we are aware of this problem and we're working to fix it. Just wait until next week. You could, this, your primary purpose of this program is to be able to pull things off of the internet and you didn't check to find out before you released this update whether or not it, your program would successfully do this from one of the biggest video platforms on the planet. And so I had to wait for an additional update because things are constantly changing. That's not how God works. And that's not how the gospel is. Go and listen to what Peter says in his second letter to the churches. And he says, everything that you need for life and godliness comes to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Done. Done. And amen. We don't need to move to some gospel version 2.0. You've heard me say it again and again and again from this pulpit, and I will continue to proclaim it. The answer to a life of godliness and the answer to the life that Christ calls us to live is not something in addition to the gospel. It is only Jesus. And it is only Christ. It is only ever a deeper dependence upon the gospel, not an advance beyond the gospel. Christ calls us to grow up in grace by growing deeper in our dependence upon Him and Him alone. So my call to you, to every believer in Jesus Christ, to every person who is in this room, if you have not yet believed in Jesus Christ, the answer is always the same. What must we be doing to be doing the works of God? This is the work of God. Believe in Him whom He has sent. Period. John chapter 6, verse 28. The life of the Christian is not to do, but to believe. And the doing will take care of itself. And so the call this morning as we focus on the gospel, brother and sister in Christ, is believe in the gospel. Receive from Christ the sacrificial, intimate, intentional love that he has given you by his life, death, and resurrection. Allow that love to so fill you up that it can't help but flow out and into one another, to see one another and to serve one another. And this is why Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. 
that we might be constantly reminded of the gospel. Every time that we partake of it, it is a reminder. The bread and the cup, the juice, the wine, the body that Christ gave for us, the blood that he poured out for us, that we might be saved, that we might be transformed, that we might be set free from our sin and given a new life in Christ. But we aren't merely to do this as individuals. And we have a tendency in the postmodern, individualistic American church to take the Lord's Supper, the very thing that is supposed to, to draw us to Christ, as we see that Jesus has drawn his friends to him, and to stay in this very me and Jesus moment. But me and Jesus always leads to me and my brothers and sisters. And so we take these little individualized portions of Jesus and stay where we are and sit where we are and focus on me and Jesus and we end up in this place where we're a whole bunch of people in the same room doing the same thing alone. And that is never to be what this meal is meant to be. It is not only an opportunity to look up at the Lord who has given us this and has accomplished everything in us in Christ, not only an opportunity to look back at what Christ did in my life at a point when he redeemed me and rescued me and I was saved, not only is it an opportunity for me to look forward in anticipation of the day when he will be with us again and have the marriage supper of the Lamb in his presence, it is also an invitation to lift my eyes and look around at one another. And to take this opportunity to get with brothers and sisters in Christ there should never be a moment in this place when anyone who is a child of God eats this bread and drinks from this cup alone. It should be an opportunity for us to love intentionally, intimately, sacrificially by moving towards one another, to serve one another, to remind one another as physical representations of the body of Christ, you are not alone. You are loved. That is the Lord's Supper. That is what we will do in just a moment. But all of that starts with that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. With that personal, individual response to his call and command to turn from yourself, to turn from your sin, to trust in Christ and believe in the gospel today. So if you are here this morning and there's never been a moment in your life, whether you are a small child, five, six, seven years old, or 50, 60, 70 years old, the invitation is the same. Believe in the gospel and trust in Jesus. And if you are here and you are a child of God, the invitation is the same. Believe in the gospel and trust in Jesus to do in you and through you what you will never be able to do on your own. To give you the very love that you are commanded to love other people with. Would you trust in Jesus today?